Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Today, you're about to hear a very inspiring story from Kemi Joseph. This man turned the anger he had as a child into kindness and totally changed his life. Today, he set up multiple nonprofit organizations and is a nationally known professional speaker. Kemi had some struggles growing up. He did. He was one of 10 kids. He grew up in a single parent family home. And then he got to college. He got to Miami with a full ride scholarship. Full ride scholarship. And for four years on campus, this man would wear a sign on his chest that would have an inspirational saying or would say, you are awesome, or... He'd give out hugs, high fives, peaceful pounds. Yes, as he walked through campus. And every single day, he said at some point, someone would stop him and say thank you because they needed to hear something encouraging that day. So impressed by this young man. We also had a discussion on how parents can talk to their kids about race. Which I think is so important right now, Kevin. Absolutely. It's very interesting what he had to say about that. Friends, hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Are you ready for this next guest? I'm ready to be inspired, Kevin. And I think this is going to be the perfect guest to do that. Now, we've actually never met this next guest in we person. We haven't. However, I have had a brief conversation with him. And he already seems like the nicest guy in the world. You Steph. cannot stop talking about him. Since you've brought him into my earth, since you've talked about him to me, you've daily talked to me about I him. I have. Like every day you've talked to me about him. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Well, we finally get to meet him here. We okay. do. Yes. Well, friends, our next guest is the CEO and co-founder of Fears Advantage. Over the past 10 years, he has served as a national speaker, trainer, and leader in several schools, nonprofits, and businesses across the U.S. He has even worked with Nobel Peace Prize winners to inspire today's youth. He is also a motivational hip-hop artist, and a proud Miami hurricane. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Mr. Kemi Joseph. Welcome, Kemi. Hello, sir. Yeah, thank you very much for the uh, for the intro, for the excitement, but also those deep cuts on my bio there. Like, <laughs> I, we didn't even send you anything. It's like, hey, they did their research, so yes. thank you for that. Oh, our pleasure. Well, thank you for saying yes to us, first of all. Absolutely. And second, after reading about you, seriously, you may be one of the nicest people on the face of the earth, Kemi. <laughs> I'm telling you. So can you tell Steph about your college days and the t-shirts and the signs you used to wear on campus, what you used to do? Yeah, let's start there. If we look at the um, the time from college, I, I arrived to University of Miami, said I'm a proud hurricane. We'll always throw up the <laughs> anytime I get a chance to give a shout out there. Uh, proud a hurricane. And, and part of the reason I was proud of that is because I received the full ride scholarship to attend and that was a transfer, like a transformational experience just to be able to get on campus and go to a school that at that point cost about $50,000 a year. Wow. I never thought I was going to be going to college up until that point. And then to have that be paid for was a huge, uh, huge eye opener for what's possible in the world and people actually investing in me. And so I arrived on campus with the, with the desire to give back and I was there for uh, communication, so studying film and theater. And uh, during that time, I stumbled on a group called Random Acts of Kindness. And they were literally doing small acts of kindness 
like free hugs or providing chocolate during our cold season. <laughs> like hot chocolate during our cold season. Your cold finals. season in Miami. Yeah, exactly. Like I know. I, 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 did, I did say with, I, I try to sneak these up here. Our real cold season. Uh, and, you know, providing like hot chocolate, even helping kids, um, like send letters home to their parents and pay for the postage and all those pieces. And I thought that was such a, direct way that I could give back and I didn't have to wait till a film was produced and edited and all that. I could do it right now. And when I, when I got uh, involved in there, it was a very weird thing to be out there giving free hugs. Cause I, I don't even think at that point I really hugged any of my family members. It wasn't a thing that I used to do that we used to do as a, as a culture in our home, but being out there with the big old free hug sign and like just shouting out free hugs. Free hug. I don't know if you've ever been like rejected trying to give free hugs, but it's not <laughs> that fun. <laughs> and eventually my sign went from like up here giving free hugs to like slowly, slowly further down, like less and less of a smile on my face. And uh, fortunately, uh, the club president at the time, Amy, really, uh, I guess, saw something hopeful in me and encouraged me to to keep coming back to eventually being able to not only start getting free hugs every now and then, but mostly bringing it in my own style. So eventually I was saying things like free hugs, high fives and peaceful pounds, which is a fist bump, free hugs, high fives and peaceful pounds, come on down. Or you can do a <laughs> smile and a wave, no contact necessary. And it was, it, it, it gave me a chance to bring myself into the kindness conversation in a way that was different than anybody else who was doing it at the time. But it also showed me that to be creative is really a big part of this kindness conversation. And that, that got me hooked. And, uh, I, I'm somebody who also likes to live big. So after I was like, I got, I got these hugs and I would do like hug marathons, like 12 hour days. Of, <laughs> what? I'm saying like, I, I did not play small by any means. Uh, and eventually the, uh, as you mentioned with the signs, um, it was a desire to, to really think again, how can I spread a message on a regular basis of positivity and uh, I had all these grand ideas of, of what I could do. And as I was writing all this down, one idea came to mind was, what if you just wear a sign on your chest that says something positive each day? And the very first sign I wrote was, you are awesome. Okay. The letters U, the letter R, and the word awesome. And I just literally taped it to my shirt. I didn't have as much hair as I do right now. So I was just, you know, just taped it to my shirt and just walked around campus for the day. And it was a very interesting experience. But I remember one person came up to me and said, I really needed to hear that. Mm. I really needed to hear that today. And almost every single day that I wore a sign, I wore a sign for about four and a half years. Really? Almost every day, I had somebody stop me at some point and say, I really needed to hear that today. Did you and switch it up? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wore a different one. So, yeah, it was, you know, you were awesome. I love who you are. Uh, spreading love brings peace. Uh, there's uh, there's so many. Those are the classic ones that come to mind. And um, it, every single day, somebody would stop me at some point and say, I really needed to hear that today. Oh, wow. Okay. First off, people do not have the courage like you do to stand outside, have a sign, talk to strangers, right? And And we have this just fear of rejection, mm. right? Mm -hmm. A big time fear of rejection. How did you, did you have that when you started? Were you always this outgoing? Because most people do not have that type of courage just to stand outside and, and talk to a perfect stranger. 
Yeah, I mean, the uh, the rejection is real. I will say that for sure. It is humbling. It is uh, maddening at some times. And, and this is what I was sharing with that free hug story that, uh, you know, the rejection was the thing that was like, oh, maybe free hugs are not for me, which is a valid, <laughs> that's a valid belief to have when you're being straight up rejected by people who just like, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, that still happens to me today where uh, I still see people in our neighborhood, even though I'm not wearing a sign, just the idea that we haven't seen that many humans this year, but people like still avert their eyes and they don't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily acknowledge another human being that's right in front of them, even though I'm not trying to offer them a free hug at this point, I'm just trying to offer a smile. It, uh, so back then it, it was uh, very apparent to me that we, uh, I think our school was about 10,000 students. That we could be 10,000 students strong, but people still feel completely lonely and isolated in our, in, on our campus. And as I understood that, it was like, it was worth me taking the extra risk to just put myself out there and, and having the support of other people who were there with me. Um, and having, having a, a deep why, having the support of other folks, uh, certainly helped me get through those difficult times. And, and then eventually, which I think is, something important for most people to gather, it becomes a habit. Eventually it becomes a habit where if I don't do it, it feels weird. Uh, right? Right. So then, then it was like, oh, okay, I'm, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to go out and do. And if, um, and people who are looking for that, I think I heard from Mel Robbins, Mel Robinson at one point that the right, or some people won't like you, but the right people will love you. Mm. And I ran into enough of those right people to say, okay, yeah, yeah. I just keep going. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> I want to know, so this isn't you, you know, you step onto campus, your family wasn't huggers. And then all of a sudden you go back to your dorm room one day and you're wearing a sign saying you are awesome. Is your like roommate, roommate, like what, what's happening <laughs> what's to you? This, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> oh man. Kemi's hugging all of his roommates yeah, and stuff. He's hu- like practicing. So, he's practicing also, yeah. his roommates. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just the roommates. Uh, it was the roommates. It was my girlfriend at the time. It was my family. They're all like, what the heck what? is this? <laughs> and uh, I think it's, uh, it, it, it's a, again, it's a weird thing of what support actually looks like, right? So some people may not understand, but as long as they're willing to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll see where this is going. I think that's, uh, that's one way that my roommates supported me and they would ask questions. And in the beginning, it was one of those things like, oh, you know, I'm just doing this part of the club. I could easily be like, oh, I'm just doing this as part of a club. By the time I was wearing signs though, it was like, no, this is an idea I have that I think is going to work. Or this is, and at least, What's interesting is the more times I would tell people why I was doing it, the more convinced I was getting that this was a good idea. And 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 again, having those meant to be moments along the way where people literally would tell me that what they were seeing and what they were experiencing was helpful. So I'm like, okay, great. Even if these folks don't understand it, these other people do. And it, it, I know it took a while for even some of my siblings, especially my mom, because this is not our culture, like to catch on. But I appreciated those who supported me, even though they didn't necessarily see where I was going. But I think that's part of having a vision. Sometimes other people may not see it and they don't necessarily know. But are we willing to hold on to that vision long enough for others to catch on? Yeah. Well, Kemi, my wife here would fit in perfectly with you. I'm like, this is my club. I missed this time in college. My wife gives free hugs, whether you want it or not. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the problem. That's the problem. So for for example, when Steph married into the family, like the first Thanksgiving, all right, my Uncle Dave was the most introverted person you would ever meet, okay? And Mm -hmm. I told Steph, hey, when Uncle Dave shows up, 
don't give him a hug, okay? You're, you're a bear hug, okay? Well, Steph either didn't care or forgot about it, okay? And goes over to Uncle Dave, gives his big bear hug, and he's like, he's you know, so arms by his sick. side, like, she's touching uh, me. She's touching me. Does anybody see yeah, this? Yeah, she's hugging me. Do <laughs> like, don't do it. And even to this day, Steph is such a big hugger. I am. All right, Steph, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite book of all time? Uh, obviously, you met her where? Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bible. Oh, oops. <laughs> oh. So what's your second favorite book of all time? You met her where? <laughs> a distant second. Totally distant. It's a pretty good book. Sorry, God. It's still a pretty, pretty good was. book. But we're so excited. Where can people get our book, honey? Okay, I know this. Uh, Amazon.com. Yes. Barnes & Noble. Yes, and? And our website, KevinAndSteph.com. And, and what happens if they buy it off our website? <gasps> what do they get? Uh, an autograph from us. Yes. Who wouldn't want that? So, listeners, if you've already read the book, thank you so much. We've had such good feedback. One thing that helps us, if you can give us a review on Amazon.com, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Kemi, I was telling Steph earlier about your world kindness tour that you went on in college, and I would love for you to share what that was and the experiences you had on that, because that sounds fantastic <laughs> in an adventure every day for you it, it was a lot it was a lot of things fantastic is one of them adventure <laughs> is another one <laughs> it was also hard and uh the craziest thing i ever did so i don't know that i would do it again but as i've been saying i uh i like to dream big so at some point i'm not even sure what planted this idea in my mind but i wanted to do a world kindness tour so all right we need to this is when i was graduating and okay. so I will, I will catch folks up to say after I started wearing a sign about a year later, I started a nonprofit called You Are Awesome. And with the goal of reminding people that they're awesome, helping them to embrace kindness as a pathway to, uh, to, to break cycles of negativity in our world. Right. So that about after I did that, we, we did some pretty big events. And so I was just building momentum, like, all right, we can do this. We can take on the world essentially. Uh, and so, uh, as part of that journey, I decided that it would be, it would be a great idea to do a world kindness tour. And people always ask, how did you end up on a scooter? Well, uh, when you have, you know, dream big and you run a nonprofit, you just become very resourceful. And so, uh, I, we looked at a couple of different vehicle options that we could afford after based on our donations and all that. And we actually got sponsored by a scooter company. So I always give a shout out to Genuine Scooters for sponsoring us and Phil for believing in me. That's awesome. <laughs> because when I say believing in me, believe in this vision of, of touring the country on a scooter. And I had never been on a scooter up until that tour. Really? <laughs> so and I actually asked Phil at some point, I was like, did you know I'd never been on a scooter? He's like, I, I had a... I had a feeling. But. <laughs> when he saw you get on it for the first time, like, how do I start this? Well, I, mean, I remember when I went to pick up the scooter, um, I went to pick up the scooter. It had been months of planning by this point. And uh, I was like, man, I really hope I can ride a scooter. What a bummer it would be that I get a scooter and just like wreck on my first day. <laughs> I, uh, but as soon as I got on there, it was like, oh, yeah, this is totally this is. So I think it's, it's going back to like trusting trusting the intuition that this is going to be, this is going to work and then essentially figuring out how to make it work and go for it. So Kemi, the map you just put on the screen here for Steph and I, for listeners, this shows a map going from, now correct me if I'm wrong, Key West, Florida mm -hmm. on a scooter 
all the mm-hmm. way up to I don't even know where does that end. Right, so it went so yeah, it started in Key West. Uh, it went uh, yeah. So we'll go through the map here. So for those who are uh, listening, started down in Key West, Florida, which is like the fur the southern furthest tip of South Florida. And, uh, and so then it drove, uh, north and went through Florida and went west all the way out to, I think as far down as, um, uh, Tijuana, Mexico. Oh, so that's, that's kind of what that map is. And I left in about February. So I was trying to chase the sun and stay out of the, stay out of the cold there. Smart man. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's why I stayed south for quite a bit. And then I actually, when I was in San Diego, ended up flying out to Honolulu, Hawaii. And then, uh, when I came back to the mainland, drove north, um, I'll, I'll share some of the challenges, but I'm just walking through the map yes. here. Then I, then I went north as far up to Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I did part oh of that journey. Uh, I did part of that journey by flight though, right? So I, I drove, I rode the scooter up to, uh, to Vancouver. That was the highest I went up on the mainland and then came back down, uh, through the, at the middle of the country basically and kind of shot down. And, and all of the lines here, if you do want, uh, come back and see the picture, any of the dotted lines or flights that I took, kind of to and fro, so to speak, as I went around speaking and uh, and connecting with schools. So this says 22,000 miles, mm-hmm. 22 states, two countries, mm-hmm. and this was over 10 months? Yeah, 10 months. And this was, if we're talking about, you know, big acts of kindness and the part that to me was still the most amazing is this was around a time where couch surfing was big. So for those of you who are listening to it in 2021, this is before, uh, before Airbnb, uh, took over the, the scene, people were opening their homes to strangers and, and in exchange just for a good time and, and for uh, people to, um, to, to make more friendships. This was called couch surfing. Uh, and it's, it's still around now, but Airbnb really kind of took the market away from that. But back then during, uh, this was 2012, I was able to do the whole 10 months without paying for a single place to stay. Like people were just opening their homes to me. Some wow. people that I had reached out to, some people who reached out to me, some people who literally saw me in coffee shops, right? You can imagine a uh, black guy on a scooter with dread, free hug sign, <laughs> big backpack there. They would walk up to me and be like, oh, I'm pretty sure you're not from around here. I'm like, yeah, that's, a, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, and, and, and sometimes they invite me to, to come in and stay in their, uh, in their homes with me, their family, have dinner. And this was just such a, that was to me the, the greatest success of the tour was just yes. meeting, uh, you know, people who who are Americans from all over the world and, and all of the different walks of life who would host me and, and let me know that there's still this connective force, even in this time of division, I still believe that. Oh, that's awesome. It just shows that people have hearts. They still mm-hmm. love one another. It doesn't matter race or culture or gender. background, gender. Like, there are still good people in this world that just still want to love on each other. And I, I love that. I am shocked. Kemi, you had 10 straight months mm-hmm. of not paying a dime for a That's hotel. amazing. Couch surfing. Couch surfing. Do you, do you still surfing. keep in touch with any of those people that you met back in 2012 when you did this? Some of them. Some of them. Yeah. The uh, Not everybody, but some right. of them. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. I have a question. Let's be honest. <laughs> couch surfing. Are there mornings you woke up and you're like, oh, glad this is my only night sleeping on this couch? (laughs) Well, yeah, there's definitely that. But again, I'm I'm riding on a scooter, so I'm like, well, there's a, there's just that just was a that was the kind of the downside of that whole trip is I was just so intense on the body being in different places and 
What's interesting is that at one point in my career in 2019, I was traveling 150 days on the road and speaking and staying in hotels, right? No couch, no more couch surfing for this guy, but staying in hotels. And I would still wake up being like, oh man, this hotel is so expensive, but I definitely had better nights on the couch out yeah. there, you know? So I think it's a, it's a little bit of both, but that's at least from my experience. The couch surfing was such a, uh, a powerful and, and positive experience. Were you sore on the scooter? Like, oh, all yeah, the, yeah, how yeah. sore? Oh was your body yeah. i mean that's kind of an intense that would be tough 10 months yeah and and you know back to me being a, someone who dreams big and overachieves it was i don't think i really understood the toll it was going to have on my body and that was uh and that became apparent so i i made it all the way out west and then i i crashed when i was in san francisco and it, it's kind of wild to get that far into a journey and then have a, a crash that technically totaled the bike and also uh, sparked a lot of injuries in, in me. Um, and but there was still, to me, a desire to complete the tour. So as soon as I could, I got back on the bike and, and kind of just powered through it. And, and as I look back, I'm like, all right, I can definitely manage with better support next time. If I were to do this again, definitely going to do it in an RV. Not <laughs> Looking for <laughs> RV sponsors. Looking for RV sponsors. Go ahead and give me a call. Yeah, that would be way more beneficial for me for sure. <laughs> so so I'm curious, Kemi, when you went from state to state, being a young black man, like you said, with dreadlocks, how were you treated, right? Because I'm assuming mm-hmm. you were treated maybe one way in San Francisco, right? Another way, maybe I'm making this up, right? Waco, Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Just based on the environment, demographic. How how did that, how was that experience for you? I appreciate that you're saying, yeah, you know, I might be making some of it up. And, you know, especially in the work that I'm doing nowadays with diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm always paying attention to like what states people believe are going to have like the worst treatment or what states people um, what, what comes to mind as people hear the story? And, um, you know, in 2012 is when, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed, right? And okay. I had just left Florida right around that time. And, uh, it was, it was certainly on my mind in that sense of, of the fear of that. And, and, you know, when I think about the treatment that I received going through the country, uh, I live in Miami, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, I received some of the same kind of treatment, like both great and not so great, you know, just here in my own home uh, town, so to speak. And so it's interesting going out into the world where um, because, of, again, being a, a black guy with, with locks and then a sign and on a scooter, I wasn't sure what people were confused by, right? So sometimes it's like, what are they looking at? Well, they're looking at all of this. I don't, I can't, I can't be mad at them for that. So I think I got used to the, the stares or I got used to the, you know, even looks of confusion, especially from like babies. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen a baby from a different culture, like see you as one being from a different culture for the very first time. Like, for example, seeing a, a white child, like see a black person for the first time. It's like, it's so wild to just like, the confusion, the like, the excitement, the what the heck, you know, all of those expressions. And to see that from, you know, older people as well, with their minds that there's been p- plenty of people where I was the first black person they ever met and like actually could talk to. And even though they live in, in the U.S. where there's, uh, there's a lot of different cultures and, and what I received for the most part, I think I only had maybe uh, two or three situations where I felt like, oh man, that was you know, racially charged um, incident or uh, something that felt concerning. Besides that, I felt for the most part that people were very 
accepting and having a conversation. Anybody who actually spoke to me was, uh, reaffirmed why I was out there in the first place, which was to connect with other human beings. And that was uh, such a, again, that's the kind of experience that I still use today as we have so much more division and intensity. It's like, I keep going back to those same people from all over, even people uh, close to Waco, Texas. I'm trying to think of this, the cities that I stopped in, you know, some people would tell me, Hey, don't go to this town or avoid going this town. This is really see. Uh, you know, you might see uh, a KKK community. And I was like, all right, thanks for that. It's fair. I'm just going to go around. I don't necessarily need to go explore that for myself right now. I don't need uh, to but, share my sign with them, right? Yeah. Don't I mean, it's, a, it's, well, they, I can send them a message on the internet <laughs> if they want, uh, but I don't personally want to go there right now. Uh, but then it's interesting. I, I've recently learned of uh, Daryl Davis's work, and I got a chance to interview him. And he actually goes into KKK communities, and and actually, you know, goes to befriend those folks. So that would be a whole other level beyond what I was doing, and that's yeah. that's not where I was at at the time. Let's talk about your background mm. because <laughs> it's powerful. I really want you to share. First of all, you guys, he has nine siblings. Nine siblings. Seven, I believe the seventh of ten kids, right? Uh, well, yeah, I'm the seventh of ten, and so of those nine siblings, so we actually have one group photo from this oh. year, uh, like with all of us, and so seven sisters and two brothers. I, this is actually us in numerical order, right there. So for those who can't see the oldest sister, uh, and then down to the youngest sister, and then the the young guys, the, the guys kind of scattered through there. So there's wow. my mom there. Uh, so it is, uh, and you know, we're trying to get a one. Like everybody to look in one direction. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not happening, right? It is not happening. But that was like one of the best photos we could get. And that was from Easter, so, right? That was from Easter, yeah, yeah. So that was in that and that was such a magical experience. And then, you know, I can share the pictures of the the this is like a gaggle of nieces and nephews, like trying oh, to get them to all look at the same I was like that little guy with the suit jacket. <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot going on, right? So so it uh so growing up in that um growing up with with uh and both my parents are Haitian American uh or both my parents are Haitian sorry I'm Haitian American so first generation uh, Haitian American here uh so being growing up in two different cultures uh growing up with English being my second language uh growing up in um in a culture that really prioritized education but didn't necessarily like I, I didn't feel like I had the tools or really the support at home to do well in school. And so I was the kind of kid who actually got expelled out of my fourth grade class because I was the kind of kid who would throw chairs and start fights. Really? And yeah. From the nicest guy on the planet the, that I introduced earlier. Hugs, yes, free right? hugs and free chairs thrown across the His room as well. like, wait, who? Kimmy? Are you sure yeah. he's the one that's offering free hugs? Yeah. Well, you too that... can be a motivational speaker someday. <laughs> Just, <ooh. laughs> a couple of different messages there. <laughs> you know, there was, uh, I, I think that's part of the reason I, when I say I had a deep why, I knew uh, I spent about the first 14 years of my life in that kind of difficult space, you know, real anger, frustration, pain. And I saw what that led me to. And it just kept leading to more anger, frustration, pain, isolation, uh, suspensions, expulsions, these things. Um, and so when I kind of got hooked on kindness, it was like, oh, wait a minute. Life can be so much better than what I had before. So that was for me why I, I think I attached to kindness so quickly because I saw it was a pathway to a better life. And in the beginning, I really felt like I was trying to 
pay back what I had taken from people because I really had hurt some people. Uh, and, and when we talk about some of the kind acts that people did for me on the tour, I'll just connect those back before we keep talking about that passes. There was a time where I had actually, um, you know, broken enter into someone's home and stole something from a person who was a friend of mine. And they felt they, I don't even know if they knew it was me or they, you know, they never told me that they knew it was me, but they felt uh, so violated in the neighborhood that they actually moved out of the neighborhood. Really? And then so to be many years later in people's homes who are complete strangers and they had opened their homes to me, not necessarily knowing about my past. I wasn't like, hey, I used to steal. Now I'm better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just I remember being in, in someone's home. I think this was actually in Waco, Texas. And uh, this was like a two-story home, like very nice. And, and they say, hey, Kimmy, uh, we have to go to work. You can lock up, and uh, once you're done, just put the key here and, and just send us a message that you're gone. And I'm like, here I am in a complete stranger's home, and then like, all this trust. And those were the moments for me that felt so redeeming uh, and to say that people can change. And, and I think for me, as, as a person who was seeking redemption and seeking to to um, to change my my actions, to change my life, to change my way of thinking, it was though that, that was one of the biggest things that I took away from the tour as people's acts of kindness back to me. And then they were letting me be a better person in their lives, even though they didn't know who I used to be. Right. So those are the things that for me connect my childhood to the work I was doing then on the tour. And and it also helped me have a lot more forgiveness for the struggles I had as a, as a teenager or as a kid and, and the struggles that my family endured to even give me the opportunity to become who I am. Mm-hmm. Kimmy, were you born in the United States or in yep, Haiti? Yep. Okay. I was born here in the U.S. So of those folks in the picture, four of my siblings were born in Haiti and then six of us were born here in the U.S. So Kimmy, we're talking about your family here and you grew up in a single parent home, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about what happened to your dad? Because this had, from from what I've been told or from what I've read, a huge impact on your life. Absolutely. So, yeah, my parents divorced at an early age. I remember that being one of the first memories I had as a kid. And I think that's what kind of kept me on this difficult path of frustration and, and not necessarily knowing what to do with all my emotions. And, uh, you know, I was the kind of kid who was really excited to become 13. I just remember thinking about my voice is going to drop. I got to reintroduce myself. Like, Hey, my name is Kemi Joseph. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but I'm 13 now. So I was getting, you know, I was getting ready for all of that. And on the, uh, the morning of my 13th birthday, instead of being woken up to the party that I thought was going to happen and the gifts, I remember one of my sisters coming in and, and just shaking me and saying, Kemi, wake up. Something has happened to Poppy. And that's my dad. And, basically walked into the living room to see the TV showing that he had been involved in a major head-on collision. Uh, it was him and three of his friends going to work, and then a drunk driver was leaving wherever they were leaving at 6 a.m. that morning, and bam, ran to my dad. And he was the only one to make it to the hospital alive. And as I'm hearing all of this, and it totally rocked my world in a sense of really telling me that that day that I had been looking forward to, one was not about me, like the, and then the means that the world wasn't about me. It kind of shattered my reality. And then, you know, seeing my dad, who I looked up to as one of the strongest people, strongest men that I knew, you know, being in, uh, you know, on the verge of losing his life and that it 
brought up so much in me and, and eventually my dad was actually going to make it out like he he we got a phone call he made it out of the coma we were get excited to to uh to um excited to have him come home and then there was another phone call that basically said that uh, the hospital didn't catch a blood clot and didn't do the right procedures and so you know he came out of the coma a blood clot stopped his heart made him have a heart attack so and that was over a two-week period. So that was one of the most intense experiences I had ever been through. And this is me as a teenager experiencing this already, having been somebody who felt very alone in the world and felt that I was dealing with depression, all these pieces with that. Also, through that year, um, one kept receiving the message that I had to do better for my family because now like, my mom was really alone and, and raising us and my family was also dealing with the pain and trauma. And the thing that I think became the bridge from that to then me getting these scholarships and so on was that I've really had like teachers and mentors show up for me. And I, I had people who became like second moms, who became like second dads and, and people who really stepped up to make sure that I could be on a better path. And, um, and I always just again say thank you to all those folks. And then so when I say that I showed up to college eventually as with my heart open wide it was because i survived that and because also other random strangers were investing in me to be able to to continue uh the journey that i know my dad would be really proud to see mm. see i love that kemi because it, it shows that no matter what no matter what you've done in your past yes you threw chairs in class yes you stole from someone's home but then a tragic thing like your dad passing, you could have totally just went off the deep end, right? Yes. But instead, you changed your life around. Like people were put in your life to help channel the good that's in you. And from where you were to getting a $50,000 a year scholarship, scholarship to Miami, I mean, it's just, it's so encouraging and inspiring that you don't give up no matter what your past is good can still come of it and i just that's mm -hmm. amazing to me so thank you for sharing that part of your life yeah i i very much uh, appreciate that reflection and i think it's uh good can come from it if we also look for the good in it mm. and it took me it took me like five years really uh even start to process what was happening for, with my dad and that whole experience. And over those five years, I pretty much like, ignored a lot of the help. Or I don't think I was as grateful for it until I became more aware of it. Oh, this has been happening the whole time. Like people have been trying to help me this whole time. And so I'll say anybody who is, is, is feeling like they're suffering and we're in a time of great suffering right now in our whole world, look for the people who are actually trying to help you. There are people there and, and sometimes they're, they're waiting for your invitation to also meet them halfway, right? That's at least that was what I had to learn in that process. Um, do you mind if I ask you a serious question right now? Yeah, go for I want to ask you about race, Kemi. Mm -hmm. So of course you as a young, educated black man, you have a unique perspective, right? Mm -hmm. On, on race. And so, as middle-aged parents, right? Here in the Midwest, like Stephanie and I are, what would you recommend to parents about having a conversation about race, about like skin color, mm -hmm. even at an early age? Do you have an opinion? Do you have any recommendation how parents could handle that? Especially given what has gone on here recently. Mm -hmm. 
Oof, big question. Growing up in, in, in Miami and being Haitian, we were taught one culture and then we went to school and then there was another culture, like a black American culture. And so even from an early age, I was, I was given some of the same messages that, um, you know, white Americans were given about black Americans. And so it was confusing to me to be told to, to not act a certain way or to not hang out with a certain group of people because of their skin color. I'm like, wait, I have the same skin color. So I'm not understanding this issue. And then when I went to, to, to Haiti, it was interesting that they didn't, a lot of people didn't see me as Haitian. They saw me as a black American because at that point I had locks and, and I was talking like American. So it was for me being bounced back and forth between different cultures. I will say that the race conversation is bigger than a skin color conversation. And if we're going to talk to anybody about race, especially young kids, let's break it down and then break it down and break it down again. Uh, for, for kids, sometimes they don't necessarily understand uh, culture and all these kind of social pieces. So you can start with skin color. I mean, kids, it's okay for them to identify. We're, we're going to see different skin colors to tell kids or to say as adults that we're colorblind unless we're actually blind or cannot see color differences that that is setting them up for failure. And that's obviously people get really frustrated when folks say that because it's almost like, Hey, if I am color and you don't see my skin color, does that mean I'm invisible to you? Like, am I a ghost or what is happening here? So let's actually encourage folks to, to honor the differences and to talk about the differences in a way that allows kids to balance multiple opinions. I think that becomes a ground level for then being able to talk to kids about other elements of what people say when they say talk about race, which might include, you know, justice or lack of justice, oppression, slavery. These are all other layers on top of this. And most of us are trying to have all that in one conversation. I'm like, oof, I don't, I don't do that. I don't talk to people or especially random people about all these different layers of what might come with race. If, if whenever I do talk about race, I really want to pinpoint what parts we're talking about and, and go from there to establish a common language and understanding. So I think as we're talking about kids uh, and especially kids who may not see, uh, may not have as many personal experiences with people of different skin colors, I would start with helping them uh, honor other skin colors as a good thing and being able to balance different ideas about people and about what their preferences are and what their favorites are so they can hold multiple ideas at the same time. Mm. That was good. That was really good. I loved how you broke it down and you're like, don't have this huge conversation. Just break it down a little bit. Cause you're right. There's so many layers to it. Just baby steps with it. And kids can understand that. I think a lot better. And I think it's easier for adults to have that conversation right. as well. Well, Steph, do you have any other questions? I have a ton of questions, wait, unfortunately, wait. <laughs> but I think our time is up. Kimmy has, Kimmy's busy. Yes, he is a wait, very wait, busy man. I have so many questions that I want to know about scooter accidents. Yes. I want to know about growing up with a family of 10 siblings. What kind of gas mileage what, you got on that scooter? <laughs> I have so many questions. Yeah, I love that. You're like, we have so many questions. Uh, and, and as you're asking me about, uh, how to talk to kids about race, um, create a space where they can come and ask questions. Mm. And we, we're in a time where we're rushing to answers. It's okay not to have the answer. It's, a, it, I would, I wish, you know, that some, that my parents, some of the mentors I had would be 
would, would have been more willing to explore things with me and say, hey, I'm not sure that Angela, let's both go do some research and come back and talk about it, right? That these kind of things that allow me to, to know that the opinions can be formed and it can be changed. Cause sometimes we as adults will like give an answer to a thing right away when it's like, ah, how do I know that? Like, right. well, why should I, I can just take a moment before. Um, so, so I appreciate y'all saying they have so many questions. So do our kids. And given that space, so something we'll come back and we'll have a kind of a follow-up conversation. I think it's just a, that's an important little metaphor for folks who are struggling to try to answer a lot of questions in one shot. We don't have to answer them all in one shot, but we can keep the space of curiosity open. Oh, that's good. Well, listeners, for more information about Kemi, you can go to his Instagram page at Kemi Speaks. That's K-E-M-Y Speaks. Or his Facebook page, Kemi Joseph, or his website, fearsadvantage.com. Also, Kemi is kind enough to give our listeners a couple of gifts. The first is a training video titled Unlimit Yourself. And the second is a PDF titled 19 Strategies for Building Trusting Relationships. And folks, we will put a link for both of those resources in our show notes so you can access that very easily. Well, Kemi, brother, thank you so much. I can't tell you how impressed I am by your courage, your kindness, and just what has inspired you and you just got involved with just to be a servant. So mm-hmm. Kemi, God bless you, sir. Thank you for saying yes to us. Thanks, Kemi. Friends, we want to encourage you to please follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. It's completely free, you guys. This helps us out big time with the folks who track this stuff. If you haven't already, we want to encourage you to please rate or even write us a review on Apple Podcast. We need as many as we possibly can, even if it's just one sentence. Thank you for listening, you guys, and sharing us with your friends. 